You're listening to Framework, where we dig into the research, planning, and building that goes into bringing products and services to market. I'm Rob Hayes. And I'm Tom Creighton. And we're talking with Elizabeth Allen, the founder of Brazen, a boutique UX research consultancy about running a client services business. Recently, she posted a 2019 year in review on Twitter that's an amazing rundown on running a business to align with your goals. You should definitely check it out, and we'll post a link in the show notes. A big reason why we want to get Elizabeth on the show is that Robin, myself, within roughly the same time frame as Elizabeth, started consultancies, and we thought it would be really interesting to find the common elements around running a small business in the creative space. If you're thinking about starting your own consultancy, which there, there's more and more popping up in the tech space around Toronto, certainly, you know, we think that Elizabeth has a really great insight on how that works, the ups and downs of it. And so we really wanted to get a chance to uh, talk with her about the beginnings and development of Brazen and its offering and how it's grown as a business so we can all learn from that. So Elizabeth, can you give us a short intro to yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm Elizabeth. As you mentioned, uh, I'm a UX researcher. Right now I run yeah, a UX research consultancy called Brazen. Before that, I was at a few product companies Shopify in Toronto immediately before, and then Prosper, which is a um, peer-to-peer lending startup in San Francisco before that. And then before that, I was at a consulting firm called Centralis doing UX research consulting there in the Chicago area. And then uh, I guess before that, I was doing a PhD in psychology and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that. And uh, so I guess I've spent the past, I think, uh, what, six or seven years now Uh, in UX research uh, after kind of floundering around trying to figure out what to do with a PhD. So you, you just listed off all of the, uh, the places where you've worked in-house as a researcher. What led you to, to kind of go out on your own and start your own consultancy? Ah, yes. Yeah. So it wasn't so much about a, a need in the market that I was trying to fulfill um, or some sort of gap I was seeing as much as it was about wanting to make a change personally. I was working at Shopify, which is, you know, as you guys probably know, is a pretty nice place to work in Toronto and feeling, you know, pretty satisfied with my job there, but also kind of feeling like I'd wanted to try doing my own thing for a while. And so this was, I guess, at the beginning of uh, 2017. And I was kind of like, huh, I think that I want to make a change for the beginning of the next year. So I kind of am like a, like a New Year's resolution person, I guess, a little bit. And I had a friend who'd done the same kind of thing the year before. He'd, he'd um, quit Shopify at the end of the previous year to kind of start something new for 2017. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I think I'm going to quit my job at the end of this year and start something new in January 2018 and decided to do things um, that way. And so I think part of the reason why I guess I had the confidence, I suppose, to do that is because I'd worked in a UX research consulting firm previously. So I felt like I had at least like a general idea of what it would be like to do research consulting. And then just, just sort of decided that, you know, if I wanted to do it, it was kind of a good time to make the leap. You know, I had some money saved up, you know, I, I didn't have any kids or anything, like no major responsibilities. And it seemed like a good time to try something new. So you mentioned that you had been in-house at, at a number of different places and even at a, at a research consultancy previously. I think it's fair to say that that between Rob and myself, a lot of the researchers that we've interacted with in our careers have been in-house in the same way. You did say that like this wasn't based on, on necessarily a need in the market, but obviously it's been very successful. Do you think that research will actually be outsourced more rather than in-house in the future? I think yes and no. So I think that, you know, kind of as time goes on, I've seen more and more companies hiring at least one researcher in-house. So whereas like, I guess in the past, a lot of companies, especially smaller ones, would have no researchers and um, maybe hire someone to come in for a contract or, or consulting or whatever. But I think that over time, it's actually 
becoming the case that more and more companies are willing to hire one researcher, but then maybe they outsource kind of beyond that. And so I find that maybe 50-50 or so, I'm in, in, I'm in two different situations. Either the company doesn't have any researchers and I am the only person they're kind of bringing in um, on a, like a short-term basis, or they have one in-house researcher and that person has too much work to do, basically, as you know, I've been in this, this situation before where I've been the only researcher, it's really difficult. And so this company might have one researcher and they bring me in to kind of augment that uh, and take on some projects that that person can't take on themselves. And of course, some companies that you know, I work with have lots of researchers. For example, I still do a lot of work with Shopify and they have you know, a huge research team and that just kind of, kind of happens. But yeah, I think that like, more and more in the future, we're going to see companies hiring at least one researcher in-house, but then maybe still outsourcing beyond that. Did you have a good sense of what the market looked like before you went out on your own? Or is this something you've kind of discovered as you've been out there having conversations with people? I think mostly I've discovered it as I've gone along. So <laughs> I think one theme that might kind of come up a few times in this conversation is that so much of, of what I've done has been just kind of winging it and not really planning too much ahead ahead of time, which I've been very lucky that that's worked out well for me. It could have not worked out well. Um, and so I didn't really do any, you know, even though I'm a researcher, I didn't really do any market research, you know, kind of per se. I mean, I had a good sense of um, what the Toronto tech scene was like having been in it for a little while. And, I, you know, I had friends at a lot of different companies. And I think that for, for me, I guess I know the value of research. And I didn't really think that I'd have too much trouble getting companies to see the value. But I wasn't really sure how I would actually get clients in the first place. That was kind of the part that I didn't really know about. I figured once I could get someone sort of partially in the door, I'd be able to you know, close the deal, I suppose. But I didn't really do much research in terms of who would, who would actually want to hire me. <laughs> so in terms of seeing the value, I think it's interesting in that you have worked over the, over the last couple of years with a, a lot of different clients. How often has it been the case that you're stepping into a, a space where your offering is like the the professional tier and really they were just like trying to figure it out on their own previously or or like just designers do, or doing testing or, or relying on automated solutions, for example? Yeah, that happens fairly often. I would say that um, more often it's it's not so much the case where like designers are doing their own testing and I kind of come in and do do testing for them, but but it's more so maybe the company has a person who's not a researcher per se, but is maybe someone in, I don't know, like marketing or like product innovations or something like that. And they've been sort of, you know, sort of kind of trying to do research um, and they know that it's important. And then they bring me in as kind of like, oh, this person's a real professional researcher and they bring me in to do that. And so that happens, I'd say fairly frequently. It does happen sometimes though, that maybe the company has designers who are doing their own research and they bring me in to kind of do that sort of evaluative research that the designers have been doing using an automated tool or kind of, you know, stuff on their own. But I would say that doesn't happen a ton because I find that I don't tend to take on that work quite so much. Um, so maybe we'll get more to this later, but I feel like over time I've learned that the types of projects I enjoy more are the kind of more foundational research projects where, where the company probably doesn't have a researcher on, on any research yet. And they're bringing me in to kind of do a lot of user interviews and maybe personas or journey maps or something to kind of get a sense of who their users are, as opposed to like, hey, here, we've designed this interface and we want you to test it. I still do that kind of work. You know, I'm, I'm starting a new project <laughs> of that today. So I still do that kind of stuff. But I've learned that over time, I find it not as interesting or exciting as helping companies understand who their users are, as opposed to, you know, like, hey, did we design this? Okay. <laughs> so so you've been doing this for, for two plus years now. Are you starting to see, I guess, patterns in the, the types of services or the ways you can package up your service to kind of speak to the needs of potential customers in the market? Um, kind of, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like, for example, 
one thing that clients haven't thought a lot about, like I think sometimes clients think that they can do research on their own, but one part they don't really think through is how difficult it can be to recruit participants. And so being able to kind of take over that function and like, you know, kind of give them a very smooth logistical experience is something that I didn't necessarily think was going to be such a point of success, I suppose, for me. But that that taking over that aspect, I think, has gone over over really well. You've been talking a lot about how you're packaging the services that that you're delivering. How much did you think about the the way that your business itself was was going to be packaged? Essentially, in terms of was it were you always thinking of of this agency approach, and you'd you'd you know, work as a consultancy with companies? Or were you thinking possibly like an embedded researcher? How much did you explore that kind of model? Yes, that's a that's a, a big question. So one thing that I thought about was in what ways would I be similar or different from the research consulting firm I worked for previously, which was which was bigger. So right, like, for context, right now, Brazen is just me full time. And occasionally, I bring in um, subcontractors to help with things. But the consulting firm I worked for Centralis, they're also not very big, but they're like, I don't know, they kind of go between maybe six and 12 people, kind of depending on the year, I suppose. And so they're certainly bigger than I am. And there's also, of course, consulting firms out there that are, you know, super huge, like, um, you know, I don't know, McKinsey or whatever, you know, (laughs) thousands and thousands of people. And so I kind of thought about where I could sort of fit in. So what I kind of figured was that I could maybe be seen as a company or as a person that would probably be charging charging more than maybe a sort of casual or occasional freelancer or someone who's on like a six month contract or a year long contract or whatever, but probably much much cheaper than a bigger agency that has a lot of you know people to support. And so I was hoping that you know clients would see me as being someone who like you know okay she's she's she has a business she's really professional like she, you know she must do good work, but not necessarily charging as much as a as a big uh, agency would. I never thought about doing like a, you know, fractional researcher or something like that. The reason being that I really value um, my my freedom, I suppose. One of the reasons why I started this business was to kind of make my own schedule and all that kind of stuff. And so I didn't think that I would do too well if I was just doing kind of, you know, short contracts or something because I knew that I wanted to be able to work from home. And I knew that if I was committing a certain number of hours or something to a company, they could sort of dictate, you know, when those hours were spent or they'd have expectations around when those hours were spent. And so what I'd rather do is structure my engagements as, you know, as individual projects and then be able to kind of decide when those activities take place. Um, I did make a kind of mistake once. Um, I mean, I shouldn't call it a mistake because I enjoyed the client quite a lot, but the, the way it was structured was a bit of a mistake for me, which is they wanted me to work with them a certain number of days a week. I think it was two days a week or three days a week or something. And I think I, I said yes, because I think at the time, maybe I didn't have a lot going on and I was excited to work with them. But that didn't work out so well because when I have other clients, um, it's really hard for me to commit to you know a, a certain number of whole days per week with a certain client, especially if they want me to come into the office or something. And so I kind of learned through trial and error there, I guess, that that, that sort of setup didn't work out so well for me. Um, because it made it really hard for me to set up meetings with other clients and and do research sessions and stuff when I was expected to be working for you know one client kind of full time briefly. Is that due to the just kind of the nature of research having to be flexible for the participants, or or what prevented you from kind of committing to committing a couple days a week to a client? Yeah, kind of. Um, so right. So one thing that can be a little bit annoying about doing research is. I, I I do have to talk to participants. I'm, I'm, that came out wrong. I, I love my participants. They uh, have their own schedules, of course. And one thing that can be difficult is trying to schedule myself around my participants' schedules and also my client schedules. So 
Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to, for example, have to tell a client, like, let's say the client says, oh, we only have availability for this meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday. And if Tuesday and Wednesday are the two days I'm supposed to be at the office for this client that I've kind of committed my time to, then that's awkward. And I have to figure out some way to handle that, which isn't so great. What I'd rather do yeah. is kind of envision my pro- my projects or the meetings for my projects as these kind of, you know, like little bricks or building blocks. And I kind of, you know, fill them into my calendar in whatever order um, seems to make sense for me and my clients, as opposed to blocking off certain days in my calendar 100% for a certain client. Um, and I feel like that that works out really well. It means that for example, you know, if I'm working with a client that themselves is an agency, which happens sometimes, I feel like I'm able to kind of tell them, like, you know, as opposed to if I worked in-house at that agency, I might be expected to be available, you know, nine to five or later, because we know a lot of agencies work work late hours. But I kind of feel like because this is my business and because I've decided to run things in this sort of, you know, each project is a bunch of little pieces sort of way. I feel like I have the um, ability to say, hey, no, actually, I'm not available during this time. Whereas if I worked in-house there, I wouldn't be able to say that. So I guess I just really value being able to, you know, kind of every week decide what my schedule is going to look like and have control over when those meetings are. And if I were sort of a fractional researcher or something for a certain client, it would be really hard for me to kind of piece piece things together in a way that I want for my other clients as well. You talk, you talk about those chunks in your calendar. And if anyone listening goes to Elizabeth's Twitter feed, uh, <laughs> you often you often post those like analysis of what your day looked like, <laughs> showing showing where you're spending your time, which are completely fascinating. I wish I had the the uh, discipline to track my activity like that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's it's literally exactly what you're saying. Those blocks of time, because you have to kind of be flexible for the participants. Is there any flexibility required to work with the team, the teams that you're that are your customers? Like, do you have to do a lot of kind of interfacing with them, or I guess handoff work with them, or is it mostly spent working with participants and then just kind of handing off? insights back to the customer? Yeah, I guess somewhere somewhere in between. So I'd say that most of my research projects do have, of course, like kind of checkpoints, I suppose, with the client. And of course, like it's also partially directed by the client where some client teams want a lot of interaction and some don't, you know, don't or don't really care or whatever. Um, but usually my projects are set up. So there's at least a kickoff meeting, which, you know, ideally involves anyone who's going to kind of touch the project in any sort of way. And so that's kind of one place where we all meet each other. And then also when I'm making the the screener for participants, so the kind of survey that they might answer to figure out if they're qualified for the study. And when I make the discussion guide to um, to structure the interviews or the usability sessions, those are also places where I might have a meeting with the client to kind of walk them through what those are going to look like. So those are kind of touch points, I suppose, as well. And then when it comes to running the sessions and sessions themselves, the client uh, often will listen to them live. So I'll kind of have it set up so that they can log into the Zoom meeting or whatever, and they can sit and listen to it. And then sometimes they ask me questions after. And then, of course, the kind of final presentation or workshop or whatever, they're involved in that. And so there are kind of places where I do interact with my clients. And of course, you know, obviously over email and Slack and, and whatever as well. And for some for some teams I've worked with, yeah, they want kind of a bit more. So I might be pretty involved in, in Slacking with them. Or maybe after the engagement's over, I kind of spend some time kind of sitting with the designers and showing them how to um, take the recommendations I've made and turn them into, you know, design changes. So that happens. But I'd say that when it comes to scheduling stuff, participants can be the, the kind of the hardest because uh, I, I feel like I have to, you know, so I, I enjoy my freedom and I enjoy not having to work late hours and, and whatnot. But I also know that, you know, if I want someone to participate in my research, they might have their own workday to deal with. And so 
that means that I have to kind of make myself available sometimes in the evenings or in the mornings. And that can be a little bit hairy sometimes, especially if I have uh, a few different projects going on at once. I try, I've learned over time that I try to not uh, run sessions for more than one project during the same week, because it's easy to kind of get overwhelmed and kind of mix up, you know, which, (laughs) who you're talking to, which project is for and whatnot. But sometimes I do have weeks where I have to um, schedule a lot of people in one week. And that can kind of get really difficult, especially when it starts to encroach on the time that I can spend talking to my clients. You've mentioned a few different touch points. And I think the one that's interesting to me to dive a bit deeper into is particularly the kickoff. And, and the aspect of that that, I, that I'd really love to, for you to speak to is the, the, I guess, the education portion of, of what you're giving them. How much are you, you know, telling them what they're going to get versus them asking for a specific thing? Or even, you know, over the, over the two plus years that you've been running Brazen, has that changed? Have you spent have to spend less time on the education aspect of, of your offering? Yeah, I find that the education part, a lot of it happens before we've even gotten to the kickoff. So like usually, I guess usually how things go is um, the client will email me. So I, I should also say that I'm really lucky and that almost all my work comes from referrals uh, or other ways of clients reaching out to me as opposed to me reaching out to them, which is really nice. And so usually the client emails me and says, hey, you know, we, we have this problem. We think we could use your help or whatever. And we'll kind of email back and forth a bit. And then we'll have a call where I try to ask them questions to understand, you know, like, why do you think research is important in this case? What are you hoping to learn? Why now? Why not? Why, you know, why didn't you do this research in the past? Why wouldn't you do it in the future instead? Why is it important to do right now? Um, That kind of stuff. And so that kind of helps them understand what sorts of problems I might be solving for them or, you know, why I might be involved. And then I also kind of talk them through what an engagement with me tends to look like. And, you know, I talk about things like what a screener is for and a discussion guide and, you know, how many sessions there might be and all that kind of stuff. And then from from that conversation, I can create a proposal. And my proposals are usually pretty detailed in that they kind of lay, lay out already these different meetings, uh, these different deliverables and that kind of stuff. Because since I'm charging clients kind of by the project, I don't want to, you know, be in a situation where I say, hey, this project costs X dollars and not kind of clearly define what that includes and have them expect things they didn't you know, necessarily talk about. And so um, I find that a lot of the education kind of happens before I'm even in the kickoff because I've kind of already worked out with the client, hey, like, you know, th- there are these deliverables, there's these number of rounds of re- revisions, there's these meetings, all that kind of stuff. And so they're kind of already pretty prepped in that sort of way. And the kickoff is kind of more about I guess a you know introductions because usually they're usually I've only been speaking to one or maybe two people and then in the kickoff there might be you know anywhere between two and twenty people depending on <laughs> depending on what happens and so kind of getting you know the kickoff is kind of about introducing myself to them sort of trying to build a bit of trust there getting everyone in that room on board with what we're doing because they might not have been involved in the earlier conversation so kind of giving them a walkthrough of what the project will look like. And then also asking them some of the questions that I might have asked the client in the the kind of pre-sell meeting, I suppose. So kind of trying to get a sense from everyone in that room, you know, hey, what like what are you excited to learn about? Like what do you think this is this will will hopefully teach you? You know, if this were a really successful engagement for you guys, what would it help you do? What decisions would it help you make? You know, what what do you think you know about your users that might be either based on, you know, real facts or research or maybe just some kind of hunches or hypotheses you have? So kind of trying to you know, what I want to do is make sure everyone in the room understands what, you know, why I'm there and what I'm there for, and that I'm there to help them and to kind of take their feedback into account. And so that when I then, you know, some weeks later present this final report or whatever other deliverable, no one is like surprised or, 
you know, like angry that it didn't include some question they had or something like that. So kind of trying to get everyone's uh, voice heard, I suppose, um, and kind of work their feedback into whatever things I'm creating for them. You recently, just a couple of months ago, or even just a month ago, celebrated uh, Brazen's second anniversary. In terms of, of that two-year span, how has your, your playbook for how you run the business and how you approach these kind of engagements actually changed? I would say that things have become a lot more predictable. So I mean, just like, you know, everything is kind of learning over time, I suppose, like, I think it's easier for me to tell right now, like which, which emails from clients, you know, prospective clients reaching out to me are going to actually turn into real work. And it's easier for me to tell what a project's going to look like. I feel like, you know, there's kind of these, I keep using the term like building blocks or bricks or whatever, but you know, they're kind of these components that that go into um, projects that are really common across a lot of my projects. So things have kind of I mean, I guess in a way things have become a little bit more boring because I kind of know, you know, pretty quickly what a project's going to look like. Thankfully, I have clients in a lot of different industries. And so I get the excitement out of, you know, learning stuff through, through what I test for, for them. So that's good. You, you talk in, again, we're going to go back to that wonderful Twitter post of yours about the <laughs> kind of behind the scenes of your business that you kicked off the year with. You, you talked a lot about some of the business metrics that you track where it's, you know, where you're spending your time, what activities are valuable for you. Did you think about those at the outset or have the metrics you've used to kind of measure your business been discovered along the way? So some definitely started at the outset. And that's because because I worked at Centralis, this other consulting firm years ago, and they had really good habits. So I just kind of, I mean, I'll, I just copied them in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, so for example... Like they, you know, there we had to track our time pretty religiously because in that case that, you know, they had employees and they wanted to make sure that they understood how, you know, what we were working on. And also they wanted to make sure that if they were, for example, thinking that a project would take a hundred hours and it actually took 200 hours that they were tracking that, of course. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of kept going with that habit just for a kind of personal, you know, uh, knowledge, I suppose. I think at first, like my first year, I was really intent on, you know, doing retros for my projects and kind of comparing, you know, oh, for this project, I thought recruiting would take six hours and it took eight hours and kind of, you know, trying to figure out kind of on a line by line basis, how much time I was taking to do things. But then over time, I kind of stopped caring, I suppose. So my first year, year and a half, I was like really intense about that. And then Mm -hmm. I think I went through a period halfway through last year where I just got way too busy. And I just like my retros sort of kept piling up and piling up. And then I just was kind of like, oh, just forget this. Like, I don't really I don't really care that much. What I do do, though, is at the end of every quarter, I look at how many hours I have worked and I look at how much money I've made. And I kind of, you know, figure out what my hourly rate ended up being and, you know, think about how I feel about that. So that's kind of I, I do do that for sure still. But I don't go on a project by project basis and analyze my time so fine tuned. I find that that was in, in my own experience, like that's the hardest thing is thinking about the doing the work about the work, thinking about your business, investing the time to actually kind of reflect on it. Because I imagine you're, you know, you're, you're, you're otherwise fairly occupied with client work. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to kind of find the time to take a step back and analyze your own business. Yeah, absolutely. And I try to make a lot of time for that because I, you know, again, this kind of goes back to working at Centralis and, you know, they kind of showed me how important this sort of stuff was. Um, so because it was a small company, we had a lot of view into what the the owners were doing. And it was kind of cool to kind of see how they were, you know, tracking their business and paying attention to internal stuff like that. And so I think that kind of instilled good habits in me. And then I think also, 
I mean, so I, I did that thread this year, and I think I did a much smaller one, maybe halfway through last year, just kind of out of curiosity. And and one of the things that I have in both threads is uh, tracking, you know, how many how many inquiries I had, how many turn into proposals, how many turn into projects, and that's something that I track in like a very basic way. I like I, I do almost all my tracking in a notebook, not my time tracking, but mm-hmm. but other kind of tracking. And so I just every month I write down any new inquiries that come in and then any proposals I've sent. And then I kind of check mark or cross off the ones that worked or didn't work. And then kind of at the end of the year, I was, you know, when I decided to do that thread, I was curious and excited. So I just went back through and, and looked at everything. So in, in some ways I do track things pretty well, but I also, part of the tracking is just like for the fun at the end of the year, as opposed to like using it to make business decisions during the year. What One other tracking thing I do that I think is really important and I actually do pay attention to during the year. And I think it's in the thread as well is, Every week at the end of the week, I give myself a color corresponding to how busy I felt that week. So uh, red would be like, I was so busy that I felt like I had to skip out on fun things or I was working really long and I was, you know, stressed. Orange and yellow are kind of different degrees of like, okay, I'm like busy, but not, you know, not crazy busy. And then green is like, either I'm actually on vacation or I just really don't have a lot to do. Um, And so every week at the end of the week, I think about how busy I felt and I give myself a color there. And it was interesting to see the the kind of pattern where things were pretty fine in the first quarter and then they got like insane in the second quarter and they kind of like slowly got back to normal after that. And I'm I'm curious this year to see if it's the same sort of pattern. Um, so that would be a good learning for me to, you know, to kind of see that Q2 is a really busy quarter, which I'm pretty sure will be the case because a lot of stuff tends to start in January when people come back from work and they're like, oh, we have this you know, research budget we want to start using. And so that, you know, things kind of people reach out to me in January or February, which means things really start happening in, you know, March or April or whatever. And I've already gotten like, I think I've gotten since the year started, like eight or nine inquiries and a bunch of them are turning into real things. So I think it will be the case that I start to get very busy very soon. (laughs) Good problem to have. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that was particularly interesting while we're talking about metrics uh, in in that thread that you posted was that a lot of them, uh, as you just mentioned, were aligned to you know your personal well-being rather than your your business well-being which i thought was was really interesting is that something that you developed over the past couple of years as a as a metric of just how you're feeling or is that something that you had started as a practice from day 1 do you mean specifically like the color recording thing for example yeah okay yeah so i mean the color recording thing yes i i i think i'd always done it and it's because it was something that we did at centralis and i actually don't remember if i introduced it to centralis or they introduced it to me i i, I forget who to give credit for for that one but that's one thing I've been doing all along yes and then just kind of more informally so I think that because my business is really just me I do pay attention to my personal well-being maybe more so than I would if I had employees and it was maybe a bigger business because I mean I guess Mm -hmm. I kind of try to think about it as like if I'm not enjoying this then what's the point right I could just go and get a Mm -hmm. job hopefully some somewhere else right and so I only want to do this as long as I enjoy it and as long as I can make money and that kind of thing. So kind of staying, keeping tabs on on how I'm feeling and, you know, whether this is really a good decision for, you know, for me, for my life is is important to me. You, you touched on the, the fact that most of your business comes in through word of mouth. You've obviously had a lot of experience in the Toronto tech community. You worked previously in the San Francisco tech community. How important is that, uh, that experience, that network to getting Brazen up off the ground initially, or or even to this day to like continue to supply kind of a pipeline of customers? 
I think it's hugely important. And that actually kind of scares me because if I somehow lost those networks, then maybe I would not be doing very well at this. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's been absolutely massive. Um, like I remember when I first when I first started this thing and I tweeted about it, I was obviously nervous because I wasn't sure if anyone would ever reach out to me for work. And the idea of kind of like cold emailing clients at that point was still very scary. And so um, I was very pleasantly surprised when I tweeted, you know, kind of, hey, I'm doing this thing that I got, you know, friend, mostly, you know, friends reaching out to me right away being like, hey, this is so cool. And then I think the first person who reached out to me with work was, um, was Mozilla, um, a friend who I actually knew from Chicago, we were in a UX book club in Chicago, and she worked at Mozilla. And she reached out to me for work for Mozilla, which was in based in Toronto, basically, and which was super cool. And so that's kind of when I was like, okay, maybe things will be all right. And so I've been super lucky because um, so much of my work comes from these people I used to know. Because I found that you know you you uh, you'll work at a company and maybe you leave that company, and then other people leave the company, and they kind of hopefully remember you a little bit, and they go off to other companies and. If you're a researcher, there aren't a lot of researchers out there. So I think that compared to being a designer or a developer, it's maybe easy to get work doing what I do because, you know, if someone moves to a new company and the company's like, oh man, we could really use research on this thing, then my, you know, former coworker or friend or whatever will be like, oh, I know this one person who's a researcher. Like they usually only know a couple of us and they'll refer me and which is, which is really great. And so for me, that's worked out super well. Um, though, I mean, <laughs> One thing that's maybe not so great about getting so much referral work is I don't spend time um, seeking out the clients that I want to work with the most, right? So mm -hmm. um, every time I kind of, I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty good problem to have. It's pretty much like every time I think, oh man, like I haven't gotten a new inquiry in a while, you know, maybe this is the end. As soon as I think that I like someone, someone writes to me the next day, it's kind of weird actually. And so it's, it's great. I've been like very spoiled, but it also means that, you know, it's not like I am you know, seeking out companies and writing to them, I'm kind of letting whatever happens happen, which uh, there's a really great book I read called Brutally Honest by Emily Cohen. And she, uh, she, it's basically a book about running uh, a design consultancy, but you know, really kind of any consultancy. Oh, cool. And that's one thing she talks about, which really stuck with me was, you know, getting all your work from referrals isn't so great, because then you don't, then you just kind of let whatever comes to you dictate how you're going to spend your year as opposed to, you know, finding the work you're really excited about. And so, for example, for me, that means that I do a lot of work on financial services because financial services comes to me a lot. And it's fine because, you know, these companies I work with are really nice and they pay well and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of my year working on financial services. I maybe want to spend more time working on things that excite me, like uh, travel, for example. But I don't really take the time to seek that out myself because I'm so busy with the work that comes in already. Have you found a way to be a bit more intentional or proactive about um, seeking out the clients that you want to work with? Have you found like mechanisms to allow for that? Uh, no, I'm really bad at it. <laughs> so I mean, the okay. only thing I do is I I, <laughs> I, I have a list. So uh, I have a, a notebook I use every every year, kind of like an agenda slash notebook. I'm looking at it right now. And whenever I come across a cool client that I might want to work with, I write them down. So I at least have a list of companies I might want to work for. And then I tell myself that I'm going to reach out to them. But then I'm always, you know, it kind of goes on my to-do list, but then I'm always so busy with the work I have. And then as soon as the work I have starts to clear up, you know, some new clients start contacting me and I'm dealing with them. And so, you know, I certainly have this list of the intention of reaching out to new clients, but I've just been so spoiled where clients keep coming to me that I just can never kind of take that break. And, and you know, I would 
it'd be really hard to say no to a client that's coming to me in order to have time to pursue clients that don't necessarily, you know, want to work with me. So it's kind of, that's been a bit difficult. That's, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming we'll probably talk about this maybe a bit later, but, uh, or maybe now, but um, it's one of the things that's gotten me thinking about whether I want to grow and become bigger so I could take on more other work. Just as a really quick sidebar, as we're talking about, you know, networks in, in different cities, I'm interested to know if you're selling basically the same kind of services or the the same kind of outputs in these different markets, or if their needs are different for, you know, just for example, like Toronto and, and San Francisco have sort of different uh, maturity, I would say, in, in their startup scenes. Is that something you're seeing or you're basically the same kind of work is coming in from everywhere? I think I'm, I mean, yeah, I think so far I've been doing pretty much the same kind of work everywhere that I haven't really noticed differences there. Though I do notice that America, in general, American clients are willing to pay more money than Canadian clients do, or they, they, they're, you know, they're kind of maybe sometimes, they're maybe sometimes willing to take on. I, it's it's probably easier for me to sell a bigger project to an American client because they're they just are more likely to not care about the money so much. Um, whereas I find that my Canadian clients are the ones who are more likely to you know to question my pricing or to see if there's some way we can trim things things down or whatever. And so I guess, you know, in that way, things are a little bit different. I don't know, pitching, I suppose, to US versus Canada. Mm -hmm. I guess like this is kind of a, another sidebar. But one thing I, I do enjoy about my American clients is that I can give my prices in American dollars, which is like an automatic, you know, like 30% bonus, essentially, where like, the same sticker price, you know, is like uh, worth more to me in the US than Canada. <laughs> and just kind of one more tangent on this is um, what about different uh verticals are there are there different verticals that you're that are starting to emerge that are introducing new research i guess research opportunities i, I know kind of ar vr companies are becoming more ubiquitous in in the tech scene and so like does that challenge your the types of research your work you're doing to to apply it to those new modalities of products that's a good question i kind of i kind of wish that were the case but so far I mean, you know, like you just can't beat a good old user interview, right? So yeah. <laughs> I feel like, you know, even though I have had the chance to work with, like, for example, like integrate.ai in Toronto, or like I, you know, I've done some work for Facebook on like some uh, smart home sort of stuff and another smart home company called Salus Control. So kind of, you know, cool working on new technology things. But, you know, the research methods are still pretty much the same. Like, I mean, a company, whether they're working on something cool or something boring, needs to know who their users are and what they need. And so that usually means that I'm having a lot of conversations with people people. And I suppose, you know, like what, what would be really cool is being able to do testing on some sort of hardware product uh, and, you know, getting to travel around and, and do something with some cool VR thing or whatever. And so far that hasn't come up, but you know, if any potential clients are listening, like holler at me, <laughs> but like, you know, like for example, when I worked at Shopify, I was on the retail team and uh, did a lot of work on retail hardware. And so it was really cool to kind of do testing of things like credit card readers and receipt printers and, and whatever kind of physical objects. And so uh, I would really like to get some more work doing doing physical stuff. And, you know, hopefully that might involve some sort of, you know, tweaks to research methods that could be kind of fun. But, you know, I guess like the basic methods I use are pretty tried and true and can be applied to any technology. So I think I'll probably just be having conversations with people forever, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so having having run Brazen for a couple of years, even just within that first year, did you have a, a prediction for how you'd do or did you just sort of dive in and, and not have a, a solid sense of how it was going to go? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I had a prediction for how I'd do, but I certainly had like, you know, I guess goals or, or whatever. So, you know, having just 
quit my job, I certainly was hoping that I would at least make enough money that I could survive the year and not have to feel like I have to immediately go back into uh, another job, right? So I mean, I thought it'd be really cool if I could make the business last for a year and, you know, kind of feel like I'd made the right decision there. Because as I mentioned, Shopify is a pretty like cushy place to work. So to quit that job, a lot of people thought I was nuts. Uh, So I wanted to at least be able to justify having done that. And then from there, it kind of went from like, okay, uh, I'd like to be able to survive the year. And then the kind of next goal was I'd like to be able to make, you know, essentially as much money as I was at Shopify, um, you know, even including some of the stock and, and whatever. And then kind of from there, I mean, like that first year was really crazy because I just had no, I really had no idea how things were going to go. Like I was, I was just hoping I'd sort of survive. And I end up, you know, kind of doing better financially, I suppose, than than I certainly would have expected and was like, you know, I guess better than I was doing at an in-house job, which was really surprising. And that kind of that was like a, that year gave me like that kind of data point. And then the following year, which was which was last year, my goals were to, you know, A, like, again, make make enough money to survive and B, kind of make a good tech salary. And then kind of from there, it was like, okay, can I make as much money as I did last year? Or was last year just a fluke? And then, you know, kind of really stretching, could I like, you know, could I do better than I did last year? And so thankfully, I mean, amazingly, I was able to do that as well. And that kind of, so I guess like as time goes on, I, I, I'm getting more of an understanding of um, how much work I need to do to survive and like how much work I could do in the year. And I think it's kind of comes down to balancing like when I have a lot of work coming in, I could take on all of it and make like all of the money, but then I have to kind of figure out what's like an appropriate amount of time to actually work. Right. And so I don't know, I'm not like a super ambitious person, but I kind of am a little bit. And I guess because this is all just me, it's like exciting to see how well I can do. And so it's kind of hard sometimes to know when to kind of give myself a break versus just kind of trying to make as much money as possible just because it's a thing to try to do. <laughs> so talking about the about your where your business comes from, you said, you know, it's it's mostly word of mouth. Do you think much about marketing your business because of that? Or or is there a need to market your business to kind of keep momentum going or grow the brand? How do you think about marketing? So the short answer is no, I don't think about it that much, which again, like, <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, things have been going really, really well for me, but they could have easily not gone so well. And all these things that I haven't been doing and haven't been thinking about, you know, could have totally come come back to bite me. But um, the only marketing I really do is like little things like, for example, like I, I tweet sometimes, obviously, like, for example, that that thread that you guys are referencing mm-hmm. certainly was in some way some sort of marketing kind of thing, right? Like, I mean, it's just to kind of get get my business's name out there and my name out there. And like other kind of small things like, you know, when I send over a proposal, it includes like kind of like a one pager that talks a bit about my business and the clients I've worked with and whatever to kind of, you know, maybe they would keep that and pass it around. I, I, you know, I do a decent amount of speaking at conferences and, you know, so that that kind of gets my name out a little bit and even, you know, even stuff like this is marketing in some sort of way. So there's kind of like little things I do, but I don't, for example, like take out ads or like that kind of thing. I mean, I guess I have a Facebook page for my business, which I've completely ignored since I made it, but I'm not really doing any, you know, advertising or marketing or kind of reaching out to to people cold or anything like that. It's more just like these little sort of incidental things that kind of pop up along the way. So this is a a very open-ended question, but I'm interested in how you, I guess, like sell through the value of research to your clients. How how do you demonstrate that? Do they have an expectation for the kind of things that they'll be able to to do or or ideas that they're trying to validate or is that part of your process is figuring out exactly where the value lies for each client yeah so i think that i mean one thing that's pretty easy to to talk about or to emphasize is that taking the time and spending the money to fix these problems now or to learn these things now 
is really going to be much cheaper than creating something that sucks and people don't want to use and then kind of trying to scramble and redesign it or something like that. So I feel like that's like kind of a pretty, <laughs> a pretty easy aspect of selling is like, Hey, it's great that you're coming to me now. Let's get this done now because it's going to save you so much, you know, time and pain later. Um, so that's something that's, that's really, really good. And also the, like having, you know, making sure they're thinking about risk. So, you know, again, I'm usually in a good situation where they're coming to me, so I don't have to do a ton of selling, but, you know, I have them kind of try to think through sometimes, like if we didn't do this research and we didn't learn the things that you're hoping to learn, like, what would the risks be? Like, you know, how, how bad could this be? What sorts of problems could there be? And that's like, can be eye-opening for some people who might not have already kind of seen the value in doing research. So, you know, helping people understand where maybe they're making decisions based on assumptions that aren't really backed by anything or not backed by anything that they can feel confident about and kind of pitching this as like, hey, you know, through this research, we're going to make you much more confident about these decisions because we're going to actually know stuff. And then you can, you know, take this and run with it for a long time usually. So, when it comes to like usability testing, for example, that's usually kind of limited to whatever interface they're having me test. But when it comes to the more deep foundational work where I'm kind of helping them learn who their users are and what they need, that kind of stuff can be applied, you know, that can, that can you know, inform their roadmap for like the next year or, or beyond. And so I kind of try to, you know, teach people, I guess, that like, yes, doing a big project like this might take some time and be kind of expensive, but like, think about what you can do with that. Like that can like guide your strategy for, for quite a while. And so I think that like, luckily I haven't had to do too much of that kind of selling, but I do have these kind of, you know, talking points, I suppose, in my back pocket. Also, also just like, you know, now that I've been doing this for a while, I have like case studies I can talk about and like actual, you know, ones I can point them to online and and on paper and stuff. And like that can help show them like, Hey, here's some tangible results I've gotten with other clients. And that helps a lot. How do you frame it from an outcome perspective in a case study or when you're pitching it to a client? Because I guess research, the research aspect of kind of product development is maybe a few steps removed from when it gets into your user's hands. So the product metrics are a few, you know, a few steps away. So how are you able to kind of position KPIs or success metrics in those case studies or when you're pitching a client? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that it's usually not so much about that, because especially if I'm getting involved early, I just can't, I mean, I I can't guarantee anything in terms of of product metrics and whatever, right? It's just like way too far away. It's more like, you know, hey, I'm here to give you confidence where you don't have confidence right now. Like I'm here to get you the, you know, the kind of user feedback you need to start making these decisions. And I can't, you know, I'm not going to promise you anything in terms of clicks or whatever, but I can at least, you know, sort of promise you that you're going to be making better decisions than you would be without research. And then when it comes to usability, maybe it's a little bit different. I, I don't, I, I mean, I essentially never make any sorts of guarantees or promises, but you know, certainly I kind of try to frame this as like, Hey, you know, you're coming to me because you recognize that there are probably issues here or, you know, people are getting lost or whatever. And like, yes, we're going to like, this research will fix that where there's like kind of no doubt that <laughs> this is going to change. And, uh, you know, I guess I do have a couple of case studies I can point to where like, for example, like clicks on the primary CTA that they wanted more clicks on got more clicks. And I can kind of, you know, share that or something with someone. But yeah, in general, I'm trying not to, you know, again, I don't want to like, I don't want to get sued or anything like that. So I'm trying not to make any like wild <laughs> claims about what I can do. But just kind of, you know, kind of emphasizing like what I do here might seem a little bit nebulous, but it's going to, you know, result in a lot more confident decision making on on your part. While we're talking about metrics, you mentioned previously that one of the the sort of measurements for yourself that you had set uh, over 2019 is that you wanted to, you know, make the same amount of money with less work or do the same amount of work and make more money. How have you set those metrics for for 2020? And how did you, I guess, how do you decide on on what that 
that measure is going to be year to year? So both 2018 and 2019, I worked about 25 hours a week. It was like, you know, 24.7 and like 25.2 or something. And so so that was kind of, you know, interesting to kind of see just how many hours I've been working. Uh, and like, you know, it sounds like that's not a lot of hours. It sounds like I'm, you know, working part time, essentially, but I only track my time when I'm like, really like focused, like solid working, like, you know, I, I wouldn't track my time if I was taking a Twitter break or like making lunch or something like that. Whereas if I worked in house at Shopify, for example, like I would be having chats with my friends and going to get a snack and whatever. And that would all kind of count towards my eight ish, you know, hours a day. Anyway, so I think that for this year, I haven't set a specific goal, but what I'd like to do is not really work any more than I than I did this year. And because I kind of track, I, you know, I kind of every every quarter I go into the app that I use, which is called Cushion, and I download my hours for that quarter, and I can at least take a look and see, you know, okay, how many hours did I work in total? How many of those hours were for client work? How many of those hours were for internal things? And just kind of now I can compare that number across two previous years and say like, okay. Am I sort of working about the same for, for like, you know, kind of quarter over quarter, um, especially now that I know that Q2 might be kind of hairy for me based on my past experience, you know, maybe I'm, maybe in Q2, I'm actually working instead of 25 hours a week on average, maybe it's more like 45 hours a week on average, but maybe that's normal for Q2 and I don't need to be too freaked out about that. Um, so kind of like, it's almost like a quarterly check-in where every quarter I kind of get excited to see what that quarter was like. I take a look at my hours I take a look at my money, that kind of thing. And I don't really have specific goals, but I certainly don't want to look at the end of the year and be like, oh, wow, I worked, you know, like 10, you know, 10 hours a week more this year than I did last year and don't really have anything to show for it. I mean, even if I did have something to show for it, even if I made a bunch more money, I don't think I'd be happy with that because I don't right now. I probably value time more than I value money. Like, I mean, obviously, uh, money is great, but like, <laughs> once you get to the point where you're you're kind of doing comfortably, uh, I'd rather have more time and freedom than I would have more money, probably. So I I'd be more happy if I, at the end of the year I saw that I worked like 20 hours instead of 25 and made maybe a little bit less money than if I made a bunch more money and worked like 35 or something hours a week instead. Awesome. So. Just before we get into the home stretch on this, uh, we tried out something new for the podcast this week or this month. Uh, we gave our listeners a chance to ask you a question too. Uh, we don't want to be the only ones peppering you with questions here. <laughs> so if you don't mind, we're gonna run through <laughs> run through that. One of the one of the interesting ones was: What are some of the most effective research methods for people who are starting? basically from scratch with a new product idea. They're not iterating on anything. They have no product in market. It's basically a concept at this point. Uh, talking to people, which <laughs> I think that people, I think what I think what people want to do at this point is like run a survey or something because surveys are, seem easy to do. They're actually really hard to do well, but people think they can do them and they're <laughs> you know relatively cheap and you're going to send a link to people and never have to talk to anybody. Uh, but the problem with doing something like that is, you know, if you're at the point where you're just developing a product, you don't even know what questions to ask people. Like, you don't even know what people are thinking about and what they need. And so I certainly would recommend being able, you know, somehow being able to access like the audience of, of people you're hoping to sell this thing to eventually. So hopefully maybe you have done a bit of market research or, um, you know, kind of a bit of thinking at least about who you think would actually use this thing. And then I would recommend you go out and find those people. I certainly generally don't advocate for like going the friends and family route, but at the very beginning, that might be all you can afford to do. So, so fine. Mm -hmm. And then just, you know, kind of come up with a bunch of questions you'd like to ask these people, trying to really dig into, you know, what sorts of things they're doing already that are kind of in line with behaviors related to your product, have them kind of talk about the problems that they're having currently that 
are sort of in the realm of things that your product might be able to solve and kind of understand, you know, why these are problems and how they're currently trying to solve those problems and what's going well or not so well about that and what kind of emotions they're experiencing and all this kind of stuff. And like really kind of try to dig into in this person's life, what sorts of pain points are they experiencing that your product could potentially try to address and then really dig into, you know, why these are pain points and how people are trying to deal with them currently. So anyway, just like having a nice, you know, nice big discussion with a bunch of these people and then kind of going from there. Um, I would recommend that much more over something more constrained, like a survey or whatever, because you're going to, you're just not going to ask the right questions. You're not going to have the context yet. A survey is maybe something you can do after you've done these kind of more broad interviews that kind of meander and go into all sorts of crazy topics. Because at that point, after doing a bunch of those, you'll have much more of a sense of what sorts of questions are really important and what kind of answer options make sense, as opposed to just kind of trying to define those on your own before speaking with people. So even though it's scary... Uh, and maybe difficult, go out and talk to people. <laughs> talk to people. You, you you bridged over into another question that was asked just around, how do you find people that aren't your users? Or like, what's the best kind of mechanism to find people who aren't existing users? You You talked about that earlier in the episode around recruitment being the biggest challenge, especially when you don't have, you don't have a user list that you can just email or or you need to go beyond that. Do you have any kind of practical guidance for that? Yeah, there's um, two things that I I tend to do a lot of. The first is use um, something like userinterviews.com or respondent.io, like these kind of services that they have people sort of on their panels. And and what you can do is write a short screening survey to kind of, you know, take the thousands of people that they have and find the ones who are at least doing things that make it seem like they are part of your potential audience. Um, And I found that, you know, I I pretty much exclusively use user interviews and I found that the quality of participants has been actually really Really great. And I've been able to, they have enough people on there that I've been able to get the sorts of people I'm often looking for. Like, for example, I just did a project that we had to talk to small business owners who use Facebook for their business in certain ways. And it was easy to find that on user interviews. And it's quite cheap. I think we, I think the, uh, it was like, it's like 30 or 40 bucks a person to recruit. Mm-hmm. Plus you also have to pay them an incentive. Uh, so yeah. anyway, so, so if it's like not a very complicated uh, set of uh, qualities or characteristics, then you can use that. Um, the other thing I use a lot is actual professional recruiting uh, firms. And so I would use uh, someone like that when I have A, a client who is is willing to pay for it because it can be quite expensive. And B, I have a need to talk to people that you can't just find you know, easily. So for example, uh, I did a project like last year or something where I had to talk to clinical trial coordinators and uh, doctors. And so they're not going to be on userinterviews.com, right? (laughs) Like, so these are people that we had to have a professional source these people, and then we had to pay them like a whole bunch. So I think that they, you know, their their incentive was like three or four hundred dollars for like forty five minutes or something. So anyway, so I'd say that like, you know, in most situations you can use user interviews or even like you know your social media, like tweet about it or something. But if you have a really complicated recruit, then yeah, going the professional recruiter way is 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 important sometimes. So hanging out in an emergency room and offering up $30 Starbucks yeah. gift cards didn't work? No, okay. <laughs> no it didn't work, unfortunately. <laughs> these are these are both super, super helpful uh, pieces of advice. Thanks for being open to audience questions. Um, but back to, back to Brazen, something that we touched on earlier was the idea around scaling your business and, and whether that's something that you want to do. 
how are you thinking about this? Is you know you you've talked a little bit about the difference between like where you are right now and and Centralis, for example. Do you have plans around that, or or how are you thinking about scale as a business? Um, so first of all, I try not to think about it because it freaks me out. Uh, but <laughs> I, I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of torn because. On the one hand, I really love doing what I do on my own. Like I read Paul Jarvis's book, Company of One, like last year or something like that. And, it, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really nice kind of digging deep into, you know, why you don't always have to grow and why it can be a lot less stressful to just kind of work on your own. And so I'm like very much about that. Like I really enjoy that I don't have to ever check anything with anyone. I don't have, you know, like I don't have to, I can make decisions all on my own. All that's great. But it's also not so great to like, you know, I have no one, no one else's eyes on pretty much anything I do aside from my clients. And, you know, like it does get lonely sometimes working on my own. And then I also get into situations where, you know, I have too much work or I can't, you know, like I can't take on a cool project because I just physically can't, you know, can't handle it. When that happens, that's when I start thinking about hiring someone. So like last year, last year in Q2, when I was super, super busy, that's when I was like, oh, maybe I should hire somebody. And I end up, you know, using a couple of subcontractors who are kind of junior researchers. And that was like, you know, that was useful in some ways. But I kind of learned that um, what I really needed was someone who is basically like me, who can like, you know, who I trust to do everything that I do and can just kind of take on entire projects, you know, on their own. And the thought of hiring a person like that is scary because this would be a person who, you know, is like a senior researcher and I'd have to, you know, pay them a lot (laughs) and that kind of thing. And like, (laughs) of course, I'm worried that, you know, I would hire this person and then not, you know, not be able to support them or, or, you know, or regret kind of having doing it because I'd be in a tough spot financially. And people always, say like, well, why don't you just, you know, hire a senior researcher on a contract or, or whatever. And I find that's really hard because if you're a senior researcher, you probably have a nice, you know, job in house and maybe you're interested in taking on some work on the side. But the problem is that if you're working on a, you know, a project with me, you have to be available during business hours or, you know, random other hours for sessions and stuff. And so I can't really trust someone to take on a whole project unless they kind of are not in a full-time job and they do have time. Like I've kind of approached people occasionally and, you know, I think people like the idea of moonlighting as a researcher, but like it can't actually happen during the actual moonlight because so much of this stuff happens during the business day. And, you know, it's, like I would love to kind of grab some of, you know, for example, my old Shopify friends and have them work with me. But if they want to stay working at Shopify, that just won't really work out so well. Anyway, so I guess all of this goes to say that I have not solved this problem yet. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. This year so far, things have been, you know, steady, but not too crazy. And as long as things aren't too crazy, I'll probably just stick with just me. But of course, the problem is then that when things become crazy, I'm too busy to hire someone and too, you know, too busy mm-hmm. to train them and all that kind of stuff. So basically whoever's listening should not do what I'm doing, which is just kind of like freak out all the time and not (laughs) solve my problem. (laughs) Management through panic. That's great. Um, This kind of goes back to, to what we talked about with your branding, but you know, is, is it hard to, to bring other people into the business when uh, a lot of what you're selling is your own personal experience through Brazen? Do you find that people are hiring Elizabeth or that people are hiring kind of the Brazen and the, the outputs they offer? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, first of all, like I intentionally uh, decided to do business under a business name rather than my own name, just in case I wanted to grow or sell the business or whatever. So at least like, for example, you know, on my website, like obviously I'm on there quite a lot, but it's like, 
you know, framed as this is brazen, not, not just me. And so at least if I hired someone, they could kind mm-hmm. of, they could kind of fit in with the company and I would probably change things on my website to show them more. And it wouldn't just be me all over everything. If a friend, you know, wanted to hire me at, at their company, they certainly wouldn't be happy if I was like, cool, like, I'm glad you hired brazen. Like here's Bob, my like colleague or whatever, right. They'd want me to work on the project. Um, and I also think would probably be because I'm kind of a control freak. It'd be hard for me to give brand new clients to some, to someone else, like to an employee, because, you know, I'd be worried about that relationship. And I want to have insight into it. But definitely, like, I have people who approach me who don't know me. It's more like, oh, uh, you know, my friend, you know, I, I, I mentioned to my friend at drinks the other day that I was, I needed some research um, and my friend recommended you. And so, hey, like, n- you know, nice to meet you. Can you help me? And in that case, they, they probably don't really care too much whether it's me versus someone else at Brazen. They're kind of, you know, talking to me more as Brazen than as Elizabeth and that would be okay. Yeah. So and, and that's not something I'm, I'm super worried about. If I brought someone into the company, then I would just kind of adjust my marketing and stuff and I think it would be okay. But yeah, thanks. Another problem to worry about. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Just happy to help here. Okay. And and one last call back to that that beautiful Twitter thread of yours. You you kind of get into it in in your third last post, but uh around what's next. You make the comment that I'll go back in-house when it feels right. Do you feel some inevitability that you will end up kind of going back in-house and working for a company at some point? Sort of. So maybe not inevitability, but one thing that I have realized, which I I didn't really think was going to be a problem, is that it is kind of lonely sometimes to be working on my own all the time. And so, you know, for example, at Shopify, there's like a zillion people who work there and like we're all friends and, you know, we hang out all the time. And that was great. And then it's certainly different to like go to like, you know, you're just working at home with nobody. And I go to coffee shops and stuff and I have friends. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I have friends, but like, it's different <laughs> when you don't have coworkers to bounce ideas off of. And so yeah. I could imagine that, you know, in some years, even if my business is still doing well, it's possible that I'd want to go back in house and either sell the business or close it or, or whatever. But I don't really know. And I think if I went back in house, it's funny because I talk about how lonely I am or whatever. But if I go back in house, I would still want a mostly remote job or like an entirely remote job. So then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not really getting that <laughs> that benefit that I <laughs> that I want. So I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I'm certainly not, definitely this year will be still running the business probably next year too. So I'm not really thinking about it too, too seriously, but yeah, I like, I don't imagine that I'm going to run this business, at least not the intensity that I do right now for like the rest of my life. Cause yeah. um, it is, you know, in some ways stressful. I, I do think that one thing that's nice is, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I bet that I'm pretty like, I can't think of the right word, but like, I bet it would not be hard to get hired at a company now that I have this additional experience that's been going really well. Like, I feel like I have so many, you know, so many uh, case studies. I could talk through now. And like, I feel like I'm a much more well-rounded researcher now that I've had to do so much of this stuff on my own. So hopefully if I did get to that point, it would be relatively easy to find a decent job. Extremely employable. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So just to, just to round this out as the flip side of what we just talked about, what keeps you excited? What makes you want to keep running this business? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is like, honestly, like personal ambition and ego, like part of it is just like, Hey, this is my business and I want it to be successful. So like, that's kind of fun in and of itself. It's like, Hey, this is my thing that I built and I'm just happy that it exists and I will kind of keep, you know, keep going. Another is that 
that, you know, even though I've kind of talked a bit about how I do get some of the same, you know, work over and over again, or the same industries or whatever, there is a lot of stuff that I do that is kind of different and cool. Like, for example, I had a project last year for a mental health organization that was investigating the like the kind of the efficacy, I guess, of light therapy as a as a treatment, and specifically the light therapy exhibit that was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto. And so that was like a very different kind of project. It was not digital. I like went there in person. And we were doing ethnography and I was kind of helping a team of interns do a bunch of work there. And so like, I do occasionally get these projects that are kind of outside the box and interesting. And that, that definitely keeps me going because I think that if I was just doing usability tests on bank websites, like all the time, I would go nuts. But uh, mm-hmm. luckily I get a decent amount of kind of like interesting work. And I think also like, I, this is, I think this is kind of like a weird way to say it, but the tech companies that are known in Toronto, you kind of like a lot of people kind of move between them and, and get jobs at these different companies. And kind of over time, I've been kind of collecting them as consulting clients. And I kind of, I, there's something that I kind of enjoy is that like, I'm getting a little bit of experience working with all these different tech companies in Toronto that maybe one day I might want to work at or, or work with more. And so that's one thing that kind of keeps me going is like, as much as I love my clients who are elsewhere, where getting a lot of exposure to different Toronto companies that are cool is also really fun. And I enjoy that a lot. That's amazing. Okay. So why don't we wrap it up there? Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us today. You are very welcome. This was a massive pleasure. Yeah. Likewise. This is fascinating to hear more, especially uh, given given Tom and I's kind of close proximity to the, the consulting world in, in the last couple of years. It's great to pick your brain about all this stuff. A big thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Brazen and what user research can do for your business, check out brazen.io. Framework is part of the Spec Network, a podcast network built to help designers and developers and researchers level up. You can find more shows like Framework over at spec.fm. Thanks to Drew Looper, who edits and helps to produce this show. If you enjoyed this episode of Framework, please leave a review or a rating on iTunes or recommend the podcast to a friend. Pretty please. If you'd like to hear someone else's product story on Framework or to tell you our own, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find our contact details as well as all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, framework.is. We will see you next time.